the, the disciples wanted to get to heaven but didn't really understand what heaven they were going after. Jesus had been talking to them about the fact that he was going to be killed. About the fact that three days later he would rise again. And their response is to argue amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest. Which one of the twelve was going to be Jesus' right-hand man, so to speak, when he came into his kingdom? And you know that they know they weren't supposed to be arguing about this. Because Jesus asks them, what were you arguing about on the way? Now, Jesus isn't asking them because Jesus needs them to tell him what it was they were arguing about. Those of you who are parents, you, you, you know this trick. Your kid has done something wrong. You know what they did wrong, but you want them to tell you what it was they did wrong. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus knows what they were arguing about. This is not a lack of information on Jesus' part. He knows darn well what's going on. He wants to see if they'll fess up to it. And all of a sudden, things get really quiet. Even Peter doesn't answer this one. Arguing? Us? No. Not, not that we were arguing. No, nothing. Dead silence. Crickets. Jesus says, all right, you want to do it that way? We'll do it that way. He sits him down. And he grabs a child and sets the child in front of them. He says, you want to be greatest? Then be like this little child. Y'all, Jesus didn't put the child in front of them because the child was a sweet, cute little kid. Children in Jesus' day were not thought of, you know, we, we coddle our kids. I can't tell you how much money was spent on my kids for toys and clothes and this thing and that thing. And still, I, you know, Maggie comes to see me, and I swear she comes to see me with one hand out. You know, she, she's, want, she's wanting money. For, I know when she comes to see me, she's wanting money for something. Mama, can you buy me? And, and, and we do it to the best of our ability. In Jesus' day, children were property. They weren't thought of as these valuable little beings. They weren't worth anything until they were old enough to help. You kind of kept them quiet and kept them fed and helped them grow up because you needed helpers on the farm. It was an agricultural society. These children were the least of these. They, they, had, they couldn't contribute anything. They were too little to contribute. They didn't have any value on their own. And yet Jesus says, if you don't come to the kingdom like one of them, you're not coming. We've got to get out of this me first mentality that our society breeds into us at a very young age. It's all about me, we think. It's not. It's all about God. It's all about love. We're called to be humble. And, and humility is one of those really slippery sorts of things. Because as soon as you think you're being humble, you just lost it. So it, it's hard. You know, there's an old country song, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. It, it's just plain hard to be humble, period. <laughs> because 
you know, we, when, if you're trying to be humble, and if you're thinking about being humble, then you're probably not being humble. Because you're taking pride in your humility, or your, uh, your apparent humility. The people who are truly human, are the one, who are truly humble, are the ones who don't make a big deal about it. They, they almost don't even know they're being humble. It's just who they are. It's just how they do. John Gunn writes that the word humility literally means a low estimate of self. But this doesn't imply self-deprecation. When you hear someone deprecating himself, you can usually put it down as a sort of counterfeit humility. Someone has said the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your full height before some higher nature that will show you how small your greatness is. Walk humbly with thy God. Here is where we learn true humility. Walking with God, seeing ourselves by the side of his greatness, we see how little we are. And seeing how little we are is the first step toward becoming what we can and ought to be. Humility is not being a doormat. It's not letting people walk all over you. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't allow people to walk all over him. But he did turn the other cheek. He was the first one to serve. He was the first one to give everything he could. Because he knew that he was, he knew he was the son of God. He, he had that knowledge in him. And out of that knowledge, he came to serve and to give, to give it up. He had been seated at the right hand of God in heaven and gave up all that glory to come down to earth and to be one of us. When he was little, when he was a baby, he had to be fed and diapered just like the rest of us. I imagine that when he was a little boy, he probably ran and fell and skinned his knees. He may have fussed with his siblings, like the rest of us. He knew the frailties of the human body. He got tired. He got angry. Do not tell the people who were in the temple the day that he threw out the money changers that Jesus was meek and mild and sweet and kind. They ain't going to believe it. But he was humble. He was always a servant. He was always here for, for us. And what he asks is for us to do the same for one another, to serve him by serving each other. There's nothing that we can give God to pay God back for the sacrifice that God has made for us. Has anybody give, ever given you a gift you couldn't repay? Completely unmerited gift, something you couldn't pay back. I've had someone give me a plane ticket so I can go see my family at Thanksgiving. My girls are going to be with their dad, so I was going to be by myself. And a friend's given me a plane. I didn't have the money to go to Denver. My parents are in Denver now, so 
It's not a hop, skip, and a jump anymore to go see them. Somebody gave me a plane ticket. And said, so you need to see your family. They had lost their mother this summer. They said, if you've still got a mother to go see, you need to go see her. And I'll take care of it. I can't pay that back. I told the person, I said, are you sure you want to do this? I can't repay you. I, you know, I, I can't borrow the money for the ticket. I don't have any way to pay it back. They don't want it back. They just want me to go have fun with my family. Jesus does that sort of thing for us on a grand scale. Jesus died for us. Laid down his very life and bled and died to pay our sins. We have redemption. We have hope. We have eternal life with Jesus because Jesus humbled himself and died on a cross for us. We're bad about thinking that, it, that it's all about us. And we have a tendency to fall into that, partly because there, there are a lot of things that we think um, are in the Bible that the Bible doesn't actually say. Things like, God helps those who help themselves. Not in the Bible, y'all. It has nothing to do with the Bible. In fact, the Bible says something very different. I want to read this to y'all. This is some statistics about Bible literacy that will be interesting to you. Pollster George Gallup Jr. has long referred to America as a nation of biblical illiterates. Only four in ten Americans know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. A majority of citizens cannot name the four Gospels of the New Testament. Only three in ten teenagers know why Easter is celebrated. Two-thirds of Americans believe there are few, if any, absolute principles to direct human behavior. A poll by the Barna Research Group suggested that religious illiteracy has increased. For example, three out of four Americans and nearly half of born-again Christians believe the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. Three out of four, y'all. George Barna argues that self-reliance is not only not scriptural, but it contradicts Revelation. A similar number of born-again Christians deny the existence of the Holy Spirit and Satan. One in five denies Jesus' physical resurrection and believes he was a sinner. Earlier surveys of mainline Protestants revealed that barely half of Lutherans, Methodists, and Presbyterians believe in the devil, but 56% of Lutherans and 49% of Methodists believe in UFOs. Y'all, we got something wrong here. One-third of Methodists and Presbyterians have faith in astrology. While nearly three-fourths of all Americans believe in hell, hardly any believe it to be their likely destination in eternity. We think it exists, but we're sure we're not going there. University of Wisconsin historian Thomas Reeves indicts popular religious belief and service. Christianity in modern America is, in large part, innocuous. He writes, it tends to be easy, upbeat, convenient, and compatible. It does not require self-sacrifice, discipline, humility, an otherworldly outlook, a zeal for souls, a fear as well as a love of God. There is little guilt and no punishment, and the payoff in heaven is virtually certain. 
Y'all, we're not, we, we got to get ourselves straight first. Before we can go out into the world and try to, to share the word of God with the world, we need to get straight what the word of God is here. We, we tend to let our Christianity get colored by the culture instead of coloring the culture with our Christianity. We aren't willing, we, we want to put ourselves first. We want it, we're, we're all about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is important. But it's not where things end. It's where it starts. Then you get Jesus saying, go forth to all nations. It's not just for you. It's not just about you know, me, and my, me and my little family, my little tribe. It's about the world. But we've got to get straight get our facts straight before we try to tell others what to do. If we're living out of pride, if we're living out of selfish ambition, then we're not living out of this. The disciples were right there with Jesus. They, should, they had every advantage in the world. They had Jesus with them day in and day out for three years. And they still didn't get it. The disciples aren't going to get it. <clears throat> I'll give you the rest of the story. The disciples aren't going to get it for a long time yet. Jesus is going to have to not only die and rise from the dead, the Holy Spirit's going to have to come at Pentecost before the disciples ever catch on to what's happening. And they had every advantage. We don't get to walk and talk with Jesus like that. We don't, we, that, that's just, that's part of the fact that Jesus came to us at a particular time and place in history. But we have what the disciples didn't know that they had. We have Jesus in our hearts. We have the ability to have Jesus with us. Jesus wants to be with us every step of the way. We have a Bible that if we will read the Bible itself, will tell us how love this is, my, my children's sermon this morning was going to be on good books. This book is the greatest love story ever written. Don't give me that. It's the Old Testament is a God of judgment. The New Testament's got a love. Baloney. This is the greatest love story ever written. The love of God for his people. We ought to be the most loving people on the face of the earth. It's been shown to us how to love. But we get like the disciples. We want to argue about who's greatest. We want to beat the Baptists if we're Methodists. You know, we, we, we want to be first. That's not what it's about. It's about being like a little child. You know, little children are, are trusting little creatures. And, and you can get a kid to believe a lot of stuff if you say it convincingly enough. Because they're open to trust. They don't know not to trust. They don't know not to love. You know, you see kids playing on the playground together. They don't have a clue about skin color or who's rich or who's poor when they're real young. Now, you get them a little older, and holy moly, it's a whole different story. But you get little kids together. You get little kids together, and they'll just play. As we get older, we see the differences, and we let them divide us. 
Jesus asks us to take the humility of a little child. Because we are all his little children. The greatest one in the room this morning, by, by earthly standards, is still nothing but a child in the sight of the Lord. May we live as God's children. May we set an example for the world in humility and love. And not fight amongst ourselves about who's greatest. But may we love and be humble and serve. And in that way, follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.